Elizabeth Crook's latest novel, The Madstone, is set in the Texas Hill Country in 1868. Benjamin Shreve is in his workshop when he witnesses a stagecoach leave a passenger behind. The man is a treasure hunter who persuades Benjamin to help him get to the coach. There's a treasure that he says belongs to him aboard that buggy. Benjamin is drawn into a drama whose scope he could never have imagined, for they discover on reaching the coach that its passengers include Nell, a pregnant young woman, and her four-year-old son, Tot, who are fleeing Nell's brutal husband and his murderous brothers. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. I spoke to Elizabeth Crook about her novel, The Madstone. So what do you say when people ask you what this novel is about? I stumble. I stumble when they say, what is it about? Because, you know, it's, I mean, it's obviously an adventure. It's also very much a love story. And it's also very, very much about Texas history, you know, but not in a burdensome way. It's not, uh, it's not a, a history lesson, but I think it covers some areas of history that maybe we didn't learn in school. Period of time, Reconstruction, which was... Uh, uh, very fraught, you know, obviously, political, you know, strife. And um, and so I, I try to make all of those things an equal part of the story. And uh, it's, it's a very difficult book to describe. I just know that so far people who are reading it really like it, which makes me happy. I mean, not that many people obviously have read it yet, but you always worry at the beginning, you know, how are people going to feel about this book? And so the reception has been really good so far. And I think of it mostly as a, as a very tender love story about, you know, two really good people who find themselves sort of thrown together in these uh, unusual circumstances. And, and they form this, this bond and actually this kind of family because there are, you know, other travelers who end up along with them and who play a major role in how things unfold. So it's kind of, you know, one of those, I think the term that's being used now, some is found families, you know, just kind of a a family that forms for, for some unexpected, unusual reason. And um, so that's, that is my attempt at what this book is about. <laughs> well, you said so many things that I, that I want to circle back to and talk about. One is this idea that historical fiction is somehow burdensome, and it's not. I mean, this, the past is about the present. And if you think about it, it's about the future, too. So this, the idea that somehow if it's historical fiction it's uninteresting or you can't relate to it or if you don't know your history you won't catch all the references and then your uh, engagement with the book is somehow affected none of that is true in certainly not with the madstone i also want to mention this idea that it is a tender love story and i feel like that's very much due to the character of benjamin shreve who we get to see again in this book, we've seen we've seen him in your previous in a previous novel of yours. But this the idea of, of historical fiction. It, I don't want to say it's turned on its head. It just is what it is, and I think people need to reckon with the fact that it's just a that historical fiction makes for great stories that are relatable in contemporary times. Yes, and I've always written you know historical fiction because I grew up reading so much historical fiction and. And my mom, who read to us every night, was always, uh, you know, choosing books that happened in another time to people who were living lives that were in real stark 
contrast to our own lives. So I got really comfortable with kind of jumping out of my own, you know, very um, comfortable life into these untoward circumstances that were happening in another part of the world and to people, you know, who who maybe were not uh, as comfortable as I was with their life. And so uh, it, it, I find it, I, I find it the most lovely thing to read. And the only reason I said, you know, that it, it's not burdensome in that way is that I think sometimes a book will be heavy with with passages that seem very uh, didactic, and they're sort of outside the story, but they they tend to want to fill in way too too much of the history. And I tried with with this book and with the Witch Way Tree to give the, all the right information in very small doses. Uh, and because Benjamin is relating the story, he's not he, he's not going to give a lot of extraneous backstory. As a researcher, I go into all the extraneous backstory. I go down every wrong road. I go down every rabbit hole. I, you know, I'm always excited and sort of overly excited by all the history. And it takes me several years, really, just to do the research because I find everything so incredibly interesting. But when you're writing, you have to realize all the things that have to be left out. I often put them in. And then kind of go through them and think, okay, this this is just making is making the boat sink a little low in the water. So this has to go and this has to go. With Benjamin, I haven't had that problem because he's so straightforward in his storytelling, and the book is all action. It's just one thing after another happening, and he is he manages to convey, convey the politics, the landscape, the details of how people lived, the, how people traveled. You know how you hitch two mules to a wagon, all of that, without a lot of extraneous explain, explaining of the details. And I think uh, I think that's one reason I have loved writing in his voice, because he gets so much across in such a succinct and straightforward uh, way. You know, when I started reading the novel, I wondered about how what is in effect, it's sort of, a, it's an epistolary thing. You know, he's writing a letter. It's it's not a poem, obviously, but it's like this dramatic monologue. He has a very specific audience that he's writing to. And I wondered how, with this first-person narration, are we going to go through this entire novel? How is it going to be sustained that way with just Benjamin telling the story? And I don't know how you did it. I mean, it's not divided into chapters or parts. And we have Benjamin with his narration writing to Tot. We don't miss the artifice of the breaks. It's amazing. You just sort of sink into it. I mean, it's unputdownable. <laughs> That's the other thing about this. So you don't miss the artifice of, of the breaks. And the journey that Benjamin covers is is something like over nine days long with flashbacks included. And not just his own flashbacks, but anecdotes and exposition about the others even the other characters how did you hit on this structure for this novel how far into it were you when you thought this is going to work <laughs> what was that I like think, i think i <clears throat> i think i felt like it would work um because the witch way tree worked and he had done this in the witch way tree mm -hmm. uh in the witch way tree of course he's relating um, the story basically, a judge has mandated him to 
report on an incident uh, that he saw. And um, <clears throat> and so he, he has a different audience. Mm-hmm. And um, he's a very sort of dutiful storyteller. He's very earnest. He's also very funny, not because he's trying to be funny, but because he doesn't know he's funny. <laughs> um, you know, he's so he's just so deadpan in his relating of the story. And um, and people, you know, I remember when my mom was first reading The Witch Way Tree, and it's a very, you know, violent book, as this one is, too. And, and she looked at me and she said, am I supposed to be laughing? Because she was laughing, you know, and, I, and she said, because this is horrible things are happening. And I said, well, it's just his way of telling the story. Um, and because he's, he's trying to he's trying to get it exactly right, you know. And so with this one, he has a different audience. It was a little bit tricky because he's telling the story to a little boy, but to be read when he is grown, when he's old enough to read the more unsavory passages. I had to age him up two years because he's two years older in this story when he's relating it uh, from The Witch Way Tree. And so I had to sort of improve his, you know, his, improve his wisdom by two years and make him old enough to fall in love you know, and um, and give him a little more wisdom and just a little more, make his make his speech pattern a little more uh, correct and so, and sophisticated because he's done reading in the last two years. So it's really a very uh, straightforward voice and very unflourished in a way, which is what I love about how people wrote back then. They wrote like they spoke. Mm-hmm. They were, he's untaught essentially. So he's just telling the story, and you really get the sense that you're just listening. You really do, and you capture these lexical items of the time, expressions that that Benjamin uses. So if I would sit, as, as I sat and read for, let's say, two or three hours, and then I would go and say something to my daughter, I would find myself wanting to talk like, <laughs> I was so. I know. I have that trouble. I know. I did because I would be writing like that all day long, and I also I write out loud. I I, I say the words as I'm, oh my you know, gosh. as I'm typing them, and um, I just because I mean I read that way too. I'm just a slow reader and slow writer, and and my dog often thinks you know there's an intruder in the house. He'll just catch some strand <laughs> of me whispering at the computer, and he'll go tearing through the house. You know, look for intruder. But then it's hard to stop, you know. You yeah. have to remember. I'm not. This is. I'm not Benjamin anymore today. When the when the when work day is over, so you do get into that pattern. It, it's um. It's a fun speech pattern, you know. It's it's very. Uh, it's it's just it's just fun for me. It's just lively. I I don't find it. I I wouldn't be able to just really, you know, rattle off a whole monologue in that pattern if I was just you know standing there. But I. If I have my fingers on the keys, it comes very easily. Oh, I, I just love it. I, and I can imagine like writing and, and saying the words out loud. And I love, I'm, I'm so drawn to him. I, I love that he wears spectacles. Such a very real quality. It's sort of, sort of like, of course, people had toothaches back then. And of course, people wore glasses. And, you know, of course, the, um, those were things that you had to think about when you were going on a long journey is, you know, all of these things that you had to take care of. And I th- love also how he, how Benjamin references Benjamin Franklin. And he's, you know, I just, I just love th- these things about him. He is very earnest, as you say. He's very 
observant. He's very watchful and and he cares. And he, you know, he's always sort of in his head. He's just such an endearing character. And I was thinking also about how he represents, I think, the way that we think about history. When when history is happening, you you know, you don't know you're in the middle of it, but there's something about his earnestness that sort of I, I don't know, like I feel like he's just paying attention and he understands the weight of situations so plainly. And therefore, he is going to do just the best that he can in these situations, essentially to help others for good or ill, uh, even though, you know, he's thinking about every possible thing that could go wrong and, you know, all of these, how am I going to get back and all of these other things. But he just seems to be somebody who understands the weight of situations and what kind of repercussions there might be for any one decision that he makes. It's, he's, he's so in his head. I just, I found that so endearing about him. Well, you are making me smile because you've noticed all the things I love about him, um, really. Uh, he, yeah, I mean, he's a kind person. He's wise for his age. Uh, he is uneducated, but he has read Benjamin Franklin. At the end of The Witch Way Tree, the judge has given him some books. And um, uh, and so he's read Benjamin Franklin and some other books and, and gleaned a lot of information, even though his, his own life is very small and limited, you know, uh, living in Comfort, Texas and working, you know, to as a tradesman, basically making furniture. But he, he does always, he has a very strong moral core. And just kind of an, uh, a very um, prosaic, in a way, understanding, you know, of what's right and what's wrong, and and he and he hits it on the nail every time. And even when other people are going to make the wrong decision, he has this nice way of kind of kind of nudging them to the right, of you know, to, toward the right decision. And um, yeah, I mean, I I love that about him. And you know, when he when he makes a mistake, he he's 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 sort of onto it immediately, you know, kind of knows. And he, it's all, for him, it's all about getting by. I mean, he's he's limped with nothing, basically. He's always had to struggle and to be, you know, on his own and um, and to take care of others, you know. And 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 so he, every day is like, and every, everything that goes wrong along this journey, he's got to figure out how to fix it. And so it's always about, you know, how do you how do you get through this situation? How do you fix this problem with the wagon and, you know, move on down the road? And how do you get a few more pennies in your pocket so that you can buy a meal? I mean, it's it's he's always but he's very smart and yet very, very moral about how he goes about everything. It's sort of the core of who he is. And he's at the center of all of these things that are going on around him that were true events and real people in Texas history. So I'm thinking about what happened to the Black Seminoles, how the, how that story is represented on these pages through uh, Jorge. Uh, you must have done so much research on the flora and the fauna. I, I now know what cypress knees are. I didn't, yes. I hadn't come across that before. <laughs> um, and mules. And I feel like, wow, like Elizabeth Crook knows a lot about uh, so many different things. And then the Matt Stone itself. Uh, but so many other things about 
Texas during Reconstruction, what, ha what happened in Indianola, how a hailstorm could conceivably affect a mule-drawn uh, buggy and so on, or, or people, or people just out there exposed uh, to the elements. But there were just so many things. Um, the the Impresa uh, Carlota, I mean, all of this, there was just so many elements. And yet, where Benjamin is at the center of it with Nell and Tot and Dickie, I feel like everything fits the Swamp Fox gang and and all of these things that were present in Texas in the late 1860s. It just fits and it makes sense. But I'm struck by the idea of the Madstone as, you know, this this eponymous thing. It's the title of the book. It's And I'm not going to spoil anything, I promise. But the idea of the Madstone just on its own is so compelling. Where did you first encounter this idea as a kind of a seabed for this novel? Actually, I was already into the novel when I came across Madstones. I was already into researching and, you know, sort of figuring out the plot of the story. And so that element of the story came in, um, you know, it, it, it was... It, it was an it was an afterthought, but not I wasn't finished with the book, but it was sort of an afterthought. And then it wasn't like I started out with the idea of I'm going to write a story that involves a madstone. And you know these madstones. I mean, I think I can tell what they are without re revealing you know anything about what happens in the story. Basically, if you think of a kidney stone or a bladder stone or something, but these grow in the bellies of deer and of other you know ruminant animals. But they are considered, if they're in the belly of a deer, and particularly an, an albino deer, very, very rare, they uh, have medicinal or magical you know, qualities. That was, that was the belief, that they could draw out uh, toxins from um, a rabbit animal's bite, some people believe from a snake bite. They, if you press them to the wound, that they would sort of, sort of draw out those poisons. You know, before there was any treatment for um, uh, rabies, it was the only thing that offered hope, and hope was all you had. I mean, if you were bitten by an animal that you thought had rabies, you know, the terror, because the death was hideous. It was a hideous death, and it was inevitable if you contacted that. But there were enough times when the bite wasn't quite deep enough or the animal wasn't actually rabid and had been thought to be, that it seemed like these stones worked. And so they became very um, coveted you know, and cherished items that were, many of them brought over from uh, from Europe and, uh, and, and kept, you know, in safe places, kept locked up in churches and other places so they wouldn't, you know, disappear or be stolen and, um, and, and cherished by families for generations. I would love to get my hands on a real one. You know, I've never seen a real one. I had a, somebody on Facebook contacted me way back when and said that their family had one. And I don't know why I didn't write down the name of who this was. If they're listening, I wish they would contact me because the Whitliff uh, Collections in San Marcos, which is a, a great, you know, collection of, of Southwestern art and and um, uh, and, and and writings, um, they are going to you know do a little display for the Madstone before I make an appearance there, and and uh, and they would love to 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 have it in safekeeping and put it up for show, but. They're great. They're just like about as they they come about a, like a golf ball size sometimes, mm -hmm. and they look like a, a stone. We need to get the word out. 
and make sure that you, that there's a there's a mad stone on display when you go make your appearance there. There's, it would be great. I've got love to just see one. I mean, they you know they are they're unusual things. I want to circle back to this idea because I want to talk a little bit about the love story here. And there's all kinds of friendships, and there's a lot of longing for family here. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a novel that includes a lot about Texas history. You do not need to know a shred of Texas history, I think, to be drawn into the the love story here, or the friendship stories, or just the stories about this these communities that where we you know where people would put you up for the night, or they would feed your horse for you while you were away. Um, mm-hmm. And also that, you know, even in the 1860s, people were carrying around emotional baggage. This is not just something <laughs> new that that only um, uh, us in, in contemporary times have to experience. And this is the thing, is that we can encounter the ways that in the 1860s, people are just people. Your book really shows us this. People who feel emotions, people who fall in love, people who work hard, people who endure just crushing heartbreak and catastrophes. I mean, it sounds a little like 2023 to me. And people who want to survive the things that are constantly swirling around them. And I was thinking about like these cataclysmic weather events that occur in the book. Hello, it's it's like 2023. Or people who are enduring... Uh, violence at the hands of people they don't even know or have had any other encounter with, and suddenly their whole lives are are turned upside down as a consequence, and they become victims of something so terrible. Um, there are real lessons for us in 2023, I think, from a book like this, and about a great many things. But I, I just love that, that in there, too, there is a love story. Yes, yes. And Nell, is a, she's a lovely character. I mean, she's very... Um very contained, very withholding. She's not a, a, a loud or outspoken person, but she has this inner strength and she has this, her her drive, her only drive is to protect her son. And she's she's pregnant at the time to protect this baby. And, um, uh, and she is trying to escape from a situation that is abusive. And, uh, but it's not just, you know, a husband who gets drunk and beats or anything like that. It is that, you know, her husband uh, has been involved with a, a gang that was a real gang back then um, called the Swamp Fox Gang. Cullen Montgomery Baker was the leader of this gang. And basically, well, what they did, they, they, they had not accepted that the Civil War was over. Um, they were resentful of, you know, the law enforcement coming down to impose the new laws. And they made it their mission to torment the freed black men and black women and children, you know, uh, so they basically were called the Swamp Fox Gang because they just kind of hid out in the swamps and came out and, you know, tormented people. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, there were several of these gangs, actually, uh, in East Texas primarily. And so Nell has been in this terrible situation where she's, you know, become, become more and more aware uh, of what her husband is doing. And at what point does she risk her own life and risk losing her child to to report to the Freedmen's Bureau, which was basically there to enforce the law, where the gang is hiding? And um, and she makes that step, and it's after she makes that step uh, that 
the Benjamin, you know, uh, comes into her life and and tries to help her get out of Texas. I mean, she's got she's got to get out because she's gonna they're gonna take her son. They're gonna maybe kill her. You know, Who knows they're just after her. I so admire the way that at every turn from page one, Benjamin is he really doesn't want to travel too far. <laughs> he's just okay. I'll help this guy. Okay, I'll help this person, and he's just caught up in this story that then takes him pretty far away from comfort texas um yes yeah and all the way to the sea right all the way to the gulf exactly and and there are some big important parts of this novel take place in san antonio texas which i really enjoyed reading and seeing you know the menger hotel on the page in the in the late 1860s and uh and some of these scenes the out you know the alamo and the the um the food vendors in the plaza and things like this and just brought to life uh, on the pages of this book. I thought those scenes were so um, effective and and even so lovely just to see how people would spend their time, uh, you know, on an average evening in San Antonio, Texas. I loved writing about San Antonio because I really love San Antonio. And, and you know, I, I had always known that the Minger had been there for a long time, but there are books about the Minker, you know, history and uh, books, and um, they were very helpful. I was able to get a real sense of how it was laid out then, how many rooms it had then, uh, um, you know, how it had been built. And you don't put all of that into it because obviously you're not, you know, giving a lecture about the Minger Hotel. But but um, it, it's just uh, it's just so fun to be able to go into a place that's still around now and imagine what it was like, you know, back then, and then imagine the scene in that place. Um, so I had a lot of fun, you know, with my scenes that take place in San Antonio. I got to say, too, that the character of Tot, the little boy who is the recipient of this this long letter that Benjamin is writing, you capture, uh, I think it can be kind of difficult to write about a child and and do it so realistically and authentically and I, I could just see this little boy when he was dawdling, when he was getting into things he shouldn't get into, mm-hmm. when he wanted to scream, when he wanted to talk out of turn or say something he should. He was adorable. I mean, this, this kid, I could just see why Benjamin fell in love with Nell and Tot. I think Tot's a big part of the of the package deal here for Benjamin is just su- such lovely writing in uh, writing about Tot, writing away the writing about the way Nell took care of him, writing about the way uh, Benjamin looked after him. Just beautiful. Just so such a pleasure to read those pages with Tot. Well, he is he is an endearing character and um, he's um you know, and, and and Benjamin and Nell are both such nurturing personalities, you know. So you, you get the sense that Todd is in really good hands, although you know that there's this great danger hanging over him the whole time. Yeah. And um, you know, 'cause the 'cause 'cause his dad, you know, the the gang, they're 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 on their tail, they're after them. And so, you know, you feel the the protectiveness of, you know, of these loving people. And yet you feel the overriding sense of risk. Elizabeth Crook, I want to congratulate you on receiving the 2023 Texas Writer Award at this year's Texas Book Festival. 
and to thank you so much for talking to me today about the Mad Stone. Thank you so much. What a what a thrill to get to talk to you, Elizabeth Crook. It has actually been a big thrill to talk to you, Yvette. So thank you so much for having me. Elizabeth Crook is the author of The Mad Stone. It's published by Little Brown. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>